Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud podcast book four. Today, we'll be beginning chapter one of the Mysterious Benedict Society and the Riddle of Ages. But first, we are going to have a quick recap of the third book, which we finished last episode. The children were all together and living happily with Mr. Benedict and their families. Then, of course, Mr. Curtin had to come in and ruin everything, so he captured the children and brought them to a prison where he was hiding out. By the end, the children were rescued, Mr. Curtin was caught and is now locked up, and the Whisperer is disabled for good. Now, I know that was a short summary, but if you read the third book, then you know all the middle parts, and I just wanted to give the main idea. So that's the end of the summary, but we are starting off the fourth season with a shout-out. So foolish, I give a shout-out to you. Thank you for the support, and I hope you and everyone else enjoys the fourth and last book of this fabulous series. The Mysterious Bandic Society and the Riddle of Ages by Trenton Lee Stewart. Chapter 1. Surprising Arrivals and Rooftop Reunions. In a city called Stonetown, on a quiet street of spacious old houses and gracious old trees, a young man named Rennie Muldoon Permal was contemplating a door. The door currently closed belonged to his study on the third floor of one of those houses. In this case, a grey-stoned edifice half-covered in ivy, with a magnificent elm tree in its courtyard, and surrounding the courtyard, an old iron fence quite overgrown with roses. From his study window, Rennie might easily have been looking out upon that tree or those flowers, or he might have lifted his gaze to the sky, which on this fine spring morning was a lovely shade of cobalt blue. Instead, he sat at his desk in an altitude of attention, staring at the door, wondering who in the world could be standing on the other side. For a stranger to be lurking in the hallway should have been impossible, given the fact of locked doors, security codes, and a trustworthy guard. Yet Rennie's ears had detected an unfamiliar tread. His ears were not particularly sharp. Indeed, his hearing, like almost everything else about him, was perfectly average. He had average brown eyes and hair, an average fair complexion, an average tendency to sing in the shadow, and so on. But when it came to noticing things, noticing things, understanding things, and figuring things out, average could hardly describe him. He had been aware for the last 30 seconds or so of something different in the house. Preoccupied as he'd been with urgent hours, however, Rennie had given the sights little thought. The shriek and the clang of the courtyard gate had raised no suspicions, for not a minute earlier he had spied Captain Plug, the diligent guard, leaving through the gate to make one of her rounds around the neighborhood. Hearing the sounds again after he turned from the window, Rennie had simply assumed the guard forgot something or was struck by a need for the bathroom. The sudden draft in his study, which always accompanied the opening of the front door downstairs, he had naturally attributed to the return of Captain Plug as well. He had wondered vaguely at the absence of her heavy footsteps below, but his mind had quickly conjured an image of that powerfully built woman taking a seat near the entrance to remove something from her boot. Too quickly, Rennie realized, when he heard that unfamiliar tread in the hallway, and now he sat staring at the door with great intensity of focus. A knock sounded, a light, tentative tapping, and in an instant, Rennie's apprehension left him. There were people in Stonetown right now who would very much like to hurt him, but this, he could tell, was not one of them. Come in, said Rennie, his tone inquisitive. There was no reply. He glanced at his watch, then at the clock on the wall, and then at the two-way radio that sat, silent for the moment, on his cluttered desk. Come in, he called more forcefully. The doorknob rattled, slowly turned, and at last the door swung open, revealing, as Rennie had by this point already deducted, a child. It seemed the most unlikely of developments, but the fact remained. The stranger was, of all things, a little boy. "'Well, hello,' Rennie said to the boy, who stood grinning shyly with a hand on the doorknob, swinging the door back and forth. The boy's hair, very fine and black, was in frightenedly tangled state. 
His skin, a light olive tone, was smudged here and there with dark, oily substance and stuck to various places on his shirt and trousers, both quite filthy. Was the fur of at least two kinds of animal. But the boy's large eyes, so dark and brown as almost to be black, were shining with excitement. I'm Ty, the boy said, still swinging the door back and forth. I'm five. Winnie fiend confusion. Wait, which is it? Are you Ty or are you five? The boy giggled. Both, he said, letting go of the doorknob and approaching Winnie's desk in a rush. He drew up short, resting his hands on the edge of the desk and his chin on the back of his hands. My name is Ty Lai, and I'm five years old, he said without lifting his chin from his hands, and thus with some difficulty. Oh, Renee exclaimed with another glance at his watch. I think I understand now. Well, Ty, my name is... Rennie Muldoon, the boy interrupted with a delighted laugh. I know who you are. I have a name that starts with M, too. My middle name does. I'm not going to tell you what it is, though. You have to guess. It isn't Muldoon, Rennie asked, quickly moving the radio, which Ty had noticed and reached for. No, said Ty, laughing again. Tell you what, Rennie said. I'll make more guesses later, and I'll let you touch the radio later, too, okay? Right now, it's important that we don't touch it. Right now, we're expecting to hear from a friend. Kai gasped. Is it Kate Weatherall? The great Kate Weather Machine? Who airs curves around a red bucket full of tools? Rennie raised an eyebrow. Well, she used to anyway. These days she's more of a utility belt and secret pockets kind of weather machine. A wistful expression crossed his face at this, like a shadow of a swiftly moving cloud. Rennie fixed the little boy with a curious gaze. You seem to know an awful lot about us, Ty. You saved the world, Ty whispered excitedly, as if he'd been bursting to let Rennie in on this secret, but knew he wasn't supposed to. Oh, I wouldn't say the whole world, said Rennie with a skeptical look, and I assume you're not just talking about me, but... All of you, Ty whispered, the four of you, and Mr. Benedict, and Rhonda, and number two, and Milligan. Here the boy frowned and consulted his fingers, counting off names in a whisper. He interrupted himself to scratch furiously at an itch on his arm, then began again. Hold that thought, Ty, said Rennie, and raising his voice, he said, Intercom, Sticky's office. A beep sounded from the speaker on the wall near the door, and Ty whirled to look. The speaker hung at an imperfect angle, with plaster peeling away all around it, and it was speckled with ancient paint. It would not appear to be a functioning speaker. Nonetheless, its green indicator light flickered to life, and after a brief initial crackling sound, a young man's voice rang out. What's the word, said the young voice, quite loudly and brusquely. Ty gave a little jump. He glanced at Rennie and then got to the speaker yet again. No word yet, Rennie replied. He cleared his throat. But say, George, were you aware that a five-year-old boy named Ty Lies entered the house, evidently by himself, and now standing here in the study with me? There was a pause, another crackle. Then, huh? Right, said Rennie, as if they had just discussed the matter at length. The timing is not exactly what one would wish. I'm guessing the timing has everything to do with it. Ty turned to Rennie with huge eyes. Is that Sticky Washington, he whispered, who's read everything and knows everything and never forgets anything, but gets ner... That's him, all right, Rennie interrupted, although lately he prefers his given name, George. By the way, Ty, he can hear you even if you're whispering. Rennie wouldn't have thought the little boy's eyes could get any wider, but wider they got. Two small hands flew up to cover his mouth. They were very dirty hands, too. Rennie supposed now wasn't the moment to discuss hygiene. Hello, Ty, said a voice through the speaker. I look forward to meeting you. Ty made as if to clap his hands. They seemed to think better of it. He ran over to stand directly beneath the speaker. Hi, he shouted, gazing up at it. He stood on his tiptoes, trying to reach it with an outstretched finger. Rennie leaped up from his desk. Let's not touch the speaker either, okay, Ty? And might fall off. Let me find something you can touch, how about? The speaker crackled. So, Rennie, would you say this matter needs immediate attention, or... 
No, I've got it. Just keep you in the loop. Roger that. Intercom off. Intercom off, echoed Rennie, and the green indicator light turned red. It turned red, Ty declared, so that means it's off. Right you are, said Rennie, casting about for something to give the little boy. Ty, seeing what he was up to, also looked around. The study in general was rather less colored and unruly than the desk, with less to Coffer's curious eye. Overstuffed bookshelves stood against every wall, and overstuffed chairs stood in one corner, and behind the desk sat an antique chest covered with tiny sacks of paper, which Rennie now hastily began to clear away. One particular stack of papers, however, a thick bunch of envelopes, seemed to catch in Rennie's hands. Each envelope was addressed from one of the world's most prestigious universities. Most were still sealed, but the few letters that Rennie had read said almost exactly the same thing. Delighted to inform you, would be among the youngest ever to attend this university in its long, illustrious history, naturally covering your tuition and room and board, along with a generous stipend for expenses. An extremely rare honor. If you will please reply as soon as... The envelopes all bore postmarks from months ago. Rennie had yet to reply. He looked at the stack in his hands for a long moment, as he had done so many times in recent winks, before finally setting it aside. Meanwhile, as this clearing away of papers seemed to be taking a minute, Ty turned and spotted on the back of the door, through which he had just entered, a large map of the greater Stonetown area. Concentrated in the center of the map in the heart of Stonetown itself were 13 pushpins. Ty counted them out loud, twice to be sure. Rennie, without looking, knew full well what Ty was counting, and as he felt beneath the lid of the locked chest for in two secret catches, he prepared himself for the inevitable question. Under normal circumstances, it would hardly seem wise to inform a young child that those pushpins represented 13 of the most dangerous men in the world. That those men, just as the locations of the pushpins suggested, were neither gathered right here in Stonetown, and that Rennie's sole purpose at the present was to deal with them, which meant that the child, suddenly being associated with Rennie, might be in great peril. Ty's presence in Rennie's study was a clear indicator that these were decidedly not normal circumstances, however. Perhaps given time, Rennie would sort out an appropriate answer. For now, he opted for distraction. Thirteen, Ty said, finishing his recount and turning to ask the question. Do you know what a baker's dozen is, Ty? Rennie asked before the boy could open his mouth. Ty knitted his brow, thinking. He scratched his chest and then, holding out his palms in a very adult-like fashion, announced, Well, you know a dozen is twelve. I know that. Rennie couldn't help smiling. He tapped his nose and pointed at Ty. That's right, and if you add just one more, some people call that a baker's dozen. Ty thought about this, making a great show of knitting his brow again. Then a look of understanding came into his eyes and he laughed. You told me that because I was counting the pins, because there's thirteen. Right again, Rennie declared. He did not explain that the baker's dozen was the rather pleasant term that he and his friends used for some unpleasant men. Eleven of whom had just escaped from a supposedly escape-proof prison in Brig City. Nor did he explain that the breakout had been engineered by the remaining two men, who had never been captured in the first place, with the assistance of a mysterious figure whose identity was yet unknown. Rennie said none of these troubling things. Instead, he opened the antique chest and said, "Have you ever seen a kaleidoscope?" By way of reply, Ty dashed toward Rennie, stumbled over evidently nothing at all, recovered his balance, and arrived at Rennie's side with face alight and hands outstretched. Can I hold it? He said, bouncing up and down on his toes. Can I look through it? Be very careful, Rennie said, placing a large kaleidoscope in the boy's hands. It's heavier than you think. He felt Ty's small hands doofily tighten their grip. Only then did he let go. Ty studied the kaleidoscope reverently before putting it to his eye. His other eye remained wide open and directing it at Rennie's midsection. Wow, he breathed. This was on a submarine? Rennie blinked. You're thinking of a periscope. This is a kaleidoscope. It has colors. 
tried pointing it at the light. Without lowering the kaleidoscope, Ty turned his whole body around and craned his head upward. Oh, that's even better. Isn't it, though? Try closing your other eye. Ty tried ever so hard, but couldn't quite manage it. I'm still learning to wink, he said, half squinting in a way, that gave him an air of great seriousness. He kept staring through the kaleidoscope, moving it slightly back and forth and uttering quite expressions of delight. Rennie felt an urge to toss the little boy's hair. He resisted, however, because of the tangles, and was instead about to pat Ty on the shoulder when the radio on his desk gave an extremely loud squawk. So sudden and so loud was the noise, in fact, that Ty dropped the kaleidoscope, or rather he did not drop the kaleidoscope so much as it fling it up and away from him, and only by diving forward with his hands outstretched and landing painfully on his belly did Rennie manage to catch it. For a moment he remained in that position, emitting an involuntary moan of both pain and relief. Hooray! Ty cheered. You caught it! He tumbled down to the floor next to Rennie and laid his face with it a few inches away. I'm sorry I dropped it, though, he whispered again. And again, Rennie noticed how the little boy's dark eyes shone. He also noticed how badly Ty needed to brush his teeth. That's okay, Rennie stood back. I know you were trying to be careful. The radio squawked again. Rennie hauled himself to his feet. Ty followed suit, and together the two of them stood looking at the radio. Sometimes it takes a second or two, Rennie whispered. He opened a drawer in his desk, took out a peppermint from a tin, and handed it to Ty. Don't run or jump while you have this in your mouth, okay? Ty nodded happily, slipped the peppermint into his mouth, and went back to staring at the radio, which rewarded him with yet another squawk. This one was followed by the sound of yet a young woman's voice. Secret password, the young woman. Are you there? Rennie adjusted the knob on the radio, pressed a button, and replied, Roger that, to Ty explained. Secret passwords are secret password. It's a joke. Ty giggled. Confirming all clear, came the young woman's voice. Copy that. Confirming now. Rennie released the button and hailed Sticky's office on the intercom. We have, her, he called. How's the frequency? Checking, came the reply, and then, all clear. All clear, Rennie sent to the radio. Well, great, said the young woman. What's the word? Both major airports and all private airports com- promised. Still we're waiting the word from Grand Central. I got the word from Grand Central myself. Also come promised. No, 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 Rennie muttered. Then remembering Ty, who was following everything riveted attention, he glanced down and explained. I'm just a bit frustrated, Ty. Everything's going to be fine. Oh, good, Ty said brightly. He made a sucking sound on the peppermint, which seemed to fill his whole mouth. After a long pause, during which Rennie made various private calculations, the radio squawked again, and the young woman's voice returned. This time she sounded as she was shouting in a windstorm. Stand by for ETA. That means estimated time of arrival, Rennie said to Ty, who nodded agreeably, though without evident signs of comprehension. We're not exactly sure where she is right now, Rennie went on, but my guess is that by tonight or tomorrow morning, wait, why did it sound so windy? I wondered that too, Ty said. Oh boy, Rennie whispered just as the radio sounded again. ETA, three minutes, shouted the young woman, give or take 30 seconds. Going silent now, we'll update you shortly. The radio went quiet. Did you get all that, George? Rennie said, as if into the air. I got it. Do you think it means what I think it means? I don't think it can mean anything else, do you? A long sigh issued from the intercom speaker. At least we won't have to wait long to see how this turns out. Ty tapped Rennie on the elbow. Why don't you just ask her what it means? Good question, Rennie said. Did you hear her say she was going silent? That means I couldn't get through to her even if I tried. We just have to. The radio squawked again. Hi again, shouted the young woman. She rattled off a string of data. ETA, two minutes. Meet me on the roof? Roger that, Rennie replied, shaking his head. What were those numbers and things, Ty says. Ty asked. Coordinates and altitude, came the voice from Indicom, followed by another sigh. 
Here, Rennie said, removing the kaleidoscope lens and ushering Ty to the window. See, it's actually a spyglass. Probably the best in the world. He handed the instrument to the astonished boy and showed him where to aim it. She's coming from the sky, Ty exclaimed. Evidently, Rennie murmured. He put a hand on Ty's shoulder. And that, my friend, pretty well sums up what you need to know about Kate Weatherall. Rennie returned to his gust, amused to hear the little boy repeating to him in a whisper. Pretty well sums up. And also troubled by something he had yet to lay a mental finger on. He began flipping rapidly through various piles of paper and folders on his desk. What was he forgetting, he wondered, and why did it matter? Is she going to land way over there? asked Ty, for when he had directed to aim at the northeast. The intercom speaker with a crackle explained that the projectile possesses both vertical and horizontal velocities, to which Ty responded by asking if those were real words. She'll be coming in at an angle, Renura muttered, and quite fast. Ty, meanwhile, had lowered the spyglass, which had grown heavy. With his thin arms he had covered, he raised it again and gasped. Far away against a backdrop of blue sky, he could see a figure falling. I see her, he squealed, and started jumping up and down. Good job, Rennie said distractedly. He glanced over his shoulder. Hey, what did I say about jumping? Also, please be careful with that spyglass. It's actually Kate's. Ty had already stopped jumping anyway in order to hold the spyglass steady. The distant figure was now coming into focus. A young woman in a black flight suit, plummeting at a steep angle, arms tight at her sides, yellow hair streamed like flames at the back of her wizard helmet, which was fire engine red. There's a dot following her, Ty said. Oh, it's a bird. There's a bird following her. It's diving just like she is. Stooping, said the intercom speaker. Stooping? That bird is her perjuring falcon, Madge. When falcons dive like that, it's called stooping. ETA, one minute, Rennie. Shall we head up there or not? I'm thinking it might be better not to watch. Rennie snapped to attention, realizing what had made him uneasy. Stick, I, I mean George, he cried, fanning the pages of Bulky Day Planner. He found the page he wanted and jabbed his finger in an entry that read, Experiment 37B, Effects of Decreasing Atmospheric Pressure, etc. What is it? The intercom speaker said. More trouble? Well, on the night of the evacuation, you were scheduled to run your chemical experiments on the rooftop patio, and then everything went haywire. I don't suppose you cleared... The answer to his unfinished question was the banging open of a distant door, followed by footsteps charging down a hallway. When he flew to the window, an elderly neighbor had emerged to work in her flower bed, and a mail carrier was whistling down the sidewalk, depositing letters in mailboxes. The street was out of the question. It would have been a risky option anyway. He jumped back to the radio. Hey, can you slow down at all? Copy that, came the reply, only a little, though. She was doing this, said Ty from the place of the window. He clapped his hands to his sides, narrowly avoiding striking the spyglass on the windowsill. But now she's doing this. He threw his arms out wide and legs to do jumping jacks. When he was already hurrying from the study. That's great. Please be careful. I have to go to the roof now. Wait for me, Ty exclaimed, racing after him. When he ran pell-mell down the hallway, turning the corner just in time to see a large square section of the floor settling into place. He ran over to stand on it. Sticky's already up there, he said, as Ty caught up. Hang on, this is a shortcut. He stomped his foot on the floor for four times, then grabbed Ty by the shoulders to study him. A trap door in the ceiling fell open, and suddenly, with a terrific rattling sound, they were racing upward. Ty thrilled, shouted something Rennie couldn't make out. They passed through the trap door and kept going up and up, through a gloomy attic filled with seemingly infinite contraptions, and oddments scattered in all directions. Though threw yet another trap door in the attic ceiling, and at last into the fresh air. We're on the roof, Ty exclaimed. Yep, Rennie cried, leaping into an open instrument panel nearby. He threw a lever to secure the platform, then spun to face Ty. Promise me you'll stay right there. Ty looked utterly amazed to be asked. I promise, he said in a reverent tone, and clutched the spyglass to his chest. 
The rooftop patio, a flat expanse situated between two of the house's gables, was about half the size of a tennis court. Kate would have little room for error under even the best circumstances, and these were hardly those. Wind gusted fiercely from what seemed like every direction, sending scraps of paper dancing in the air like a wild mob of butterflies. Even worse, Rennie realized those scraps were labels that had come loose from innumerable stoppered beakers arrayed on photo tables across the patio. Every single one of those beakers, he knew, contained a different substance or mixture of substances, some of them quite dangerous. Rennie glanced at the sky to the northeast. His eyes detected what it might have been a tiny insect hovering a few inches above him. He knew it was actually a far-off Kate. She hadn't even pulled her parachute yet. He glanced at Ty to make sure he was staying put. Yes, the boy was rooted to a spot, safely out of Kate's line of approach, and staring past Rennie with an expression of excited fascination. That expression was more than warranted, Rennie knew. From moving fa frantically among the tables, snatching up beakers and placing them into a wicker basket, was George Sticky Washington. The young man looked exactly as the young boy watching had expected him to look. Naturally slender and muscular, this was easy to determine, as Sticky wore tank top, shorts, and flip-flops. With light brown skin and a well-shaped, perfectly bald head, Ty had also expected Stiggy to be wearing unusually stylish new spectacles, and sure enough he was. So stylish were the spectacles, in fact, and so well did they suit the young man's features that under different circumstances, Ty would have thought him an altogether dashing figure. Under the current district circumstances, however, Stiggy looked slightly ridiculous. His face was awash in panic and self-reproach, his feet shuffled awkwardly in their flimsy sandals, and his basket was beginning to overflow with beakers, as if he were an overgrown, desperate child on some bizarre variety of an Easter egg hunt. There's no time to clear all of them, Stiggy shouted as he worked. I'm just getting the lethal ones. The lethal ones, echoed Rennie. He'd been thinking dangerous, which seemed more sufficient. He glanced at the beakers on the nearest table. Only a few still had their labels. Two days of rain and snow, and this wind had done damage. What can I do? I set it all up like a chessboard, Stiggy yelled, shoving a stopper into the beaker. Eight tables, eight beakers per table. Got it, Rennie cried, seeing the pattern. Each table represented a row on the chessboard, each beaker a space. So which ones? Without looking up from his work, Stiggy shouted chess notation instructions. A2, D4, and C5. I've got the rest. A2, D4, and C5, Rennie repeated, already hustling to grab A2. It stopped beaker in the first spot of the second row. It contained a liquid of an alarming vermilion color, which Rennie tried not to think about as he scrambled around on the fourth table. D4 contained a colorless liquid that looked like water but moved like sludge when Rennie picked up the beaker. He shuddered. Fortunately, this one was stopper too. He ducked under the table and came up next to C5, an open beaker full of what looked like to be harmless black pebbles. Uh, should there be a stopper for C5? Oh yes, believe me, you don't want those to spill. Use the one from C6, it's fine. Sticky shuffled past them, precariously full basket. This is all of them, he panted, his eyes swiveling skyward. He gave a yelp and doubled his pace. Rennie, here she is! Rennie, still shoving the stopper into the last speaker, didn't even have time to look up before he heard Kate's voice from shockingly close by. Get down, boys, I'm coming in hot. Rennie, clutching the beakers, dropped into his back. The next instant, his vision was filled with Kate Weatherall, a parachute, a glimpse of the sky, a falcon with wings widespread. And then the rooftop seemed to explode. Kate's boots, having cleared the first floor tables, caught the fifth and sixth in quick succession. Two rows of beakers shattered in frantic obstructant. The air was suddenly filled with glass, powder, liquid, and Kate. And still, she continued, crashing through the seventh and eighth tables, her parachute dragging behind her, gathering wreckage. And still, she crashed, right across the end of the rooftop patio, though the low railing and out of sight. Her parachute, full of debris, dragged after her to the broken railing, where it caught and held. Rennie sat up, then glanced at Sticky, who was crouching with the basket in his arms, and his jaw hanging slack, and then at Ty, whose eyes seemed too huge for his head. 
When he peered back across the rooftop patio, a purplish haze, not exactly smoke, shifted this way and that in the contradictory breezes. For a moment, the three of them stared at the parachute in shocked silence. And then they found themselves staring at the two gloved hands, which appeared from beyond the patio edge, clutching at the parachute silk. The hands were followed by a fire engine red helmet, and finally a figure in a black flight suit. Boots crunched on broken glass, gloved hands went up to remove the visored helmet, and there stood Kate Weatherall grinning. Hi, boys, she said, brushing glass and splinters from her broad shoulders. She gestured at Ty. Who's this little guy? Brittany and Sticky neither recovered enough to speak yet and changed a look. Ty, on the other hand, was bouncing up and down. I'm Ty, he squeaked excitedly. Brittany, let me hold your spyglass. I see that, said Kate, leaving an accusing look at Brittany, before bursting into a laugh and striding forward to greet him. Brittany, who had long ago learned that Kate's greetings could be painfully enthusiastic, was quick to show her the beakers. We're holding dangerous chemicals, Kate, he said, climbing unsteadily to his feet. Why would you be doing that? Kate asked, laughing again. You boys need to be more careful. She gave him a peck on the cheek and swooped over to Sicky, who flinched to do the same. At the sight of Ty raising his own cheek expectantly, Kate put on a dubious look. Let's get you a bath first, mister. Have you seen your face? With a word expression, Ty shook his head. Kate pretended to be shocked. What? Never? You've never seen your own face? At this, Ty giggled, and with a quick, fine, one kiss for the dust bunny, Kate swooped in on him too. After Rennie and Sticky had very carefully put down the burdens, and the three friends stood regarding one another, despite having grown at different rates, they had all arrived, perhaps only temporarily, but still much to their amusement, at precisely the same height. Thus, Rennie and Sticky's brown eyes were at the same level as Kate's old familiar ocean blues, and that was not the reason they communicated so much, and so easily enough without speaking. The three of them had been through more together as children than most people experienced in a lifetime, and they had been best friends for years. So was that everything they had been through, not just over the years, but also in the last few days, everything that remained to be done, everything seemed still at risk. These things and more passed among them without a word. Boy, am I hungry, Kate said, breaking the silence. She reached up to retire her ponytail. A sprinkle of debris fell from her hair and carried off by the wind. Are we under immediate attack, or is there time for a sandwich? We don't think they're making a move today, Rennie said. They're holed up in different parts of the city, awaiting some sort of message, most like the instructions from Mr. Curtin, though we don't know how they're going to manage that. It's not like he'll be granted permission to make a quick phone call to his former henchman. I should say not. And Mr. Benedict? He's safe at the moment as long as he stays put. Super, said Kate. How about we have some lunch and catch up then? I especially want to know how you, this she said to Ty, who stood in the middle of their little circle gazing up their faces, came to be here. I want to know the same thing, said Sticky. By the way, Ty, it's nice to meet you in person. I'm, uh, George, he said with some hesitation. For like his friend, Sticky still thought of himself as Sticky, despite his recent declaration on the contrary. He extended his hand, and Ty, beaming, shook it so energetically with his free hand that his other one almost dropped the spyglass. How did you come to be here anyway, Kate pressed Ty, kneeling to be on eye level with him and reaching ever so subtly to take hold of the spyglass. Ty shrugged and scratched his chest. She told me how. She told me all about you, and she gave me directions, and she kept me company the whole time. Lowering his voice secretly, he added, even though I couldn't see her. Kate raised an eyebrow. Even though? Oh, boy, Sticky muttered. I wondered, said Brenny, nodding. I mean, I figured. That's right, called a strident voice from behind them. I told him. I brought him here. If not for me, he'd be in hot water right now, but I guess you're all having your happy reunion on the roof without me. You don't even send the platform back down. You make me take the stairs? By this point, everyone had turned toward the stairwell doorway, and the frame of which stood, with arms crossed and eyes flashing, a very angry-looking girl. 
Hi, Constance, sighed Kate, and just like that, the society was reconvened. Thank you.